Hello, this is Scott Jens. Welcome to Sandbox Stories. Hello, welcome to the Sandbox Story, where I have the opportunity to interview Mr. Dave Brown. Dave is yet another in a line of guests that aren't eye doctors, but instead has committed a sizable chunk of his career to roles that support ECPs. And today his role is president and CEO of iDoc. Dave, welcome to Sandbox Stories. Great to be here, Scott. Thanks for having me. This interview is gonna cover a lot of topics. And I'm going to tease that we're going to even get into your role as an actor in a television commercial as a teenager. But first, let's talk about your path in the eye care industry. You started with J&J Vision Care in 2006. What were the highlights of your time there? Yeah, I was very fortunate after a somewhat lengthy career at J&J that started in 1990. So getting to uh, uh, Johnson Johnson Vision Care, Vistacon at the time, was really exciting. And I think the first highlight was uh, I was able to get around the globe and help launch some of the new innovations around the globe. So a lot of time in Japan, in Europe, uh, in Taiwan, really was a, uh, a great experience, not just to see the world, but to see optometry in so many different places. So that was really exciting for about three years. And then they tapped me to run the US division in Canada. Uh, came in in 2009, an interesting year for those with long memories. A lot was going on back then, nothing like this past year, uh, and ran that business for four years. And, uh, you know, through a lot of innovation, a lot of change, a lot of challenges, which will probably be a theme of our chat today, Scott. But, uh, you know, I was fortunate to work with some great people across my J&J career and learned a lot. And uh, I, I loved the eye care space of all my stops, as, as most people do when they get into it. It's a tremendous industry. So in 2014, the founder of iDoc, Dr. Mark Fader, brought you into where you are now. Tell us about what your leadership role is like today. Yeah, it's been seven years since then, which it's amazing how time flies. But, uh, you know, it, it is really about the strategy in the future, right? You know, you talk to a lot of leaders and a lot of folks who run tremendous organizations. And our job as leaders is to see that future, to envision it. Um, to to sort of bring to the forefront ideas. And then I guess the second piece is resource the organization correctly. Make sure that you've obviously got the right people, that you have the right culture in place, but then make sure that the resources are there so that the folks can execute and, and, and make that vision come to a reality. So it's it's fun. It's challenging. What I really love about IDOC is I'm able to sort of live way up here and I'm, I'm able to get down in the weeds too, which, uh, you know, something in some of these larger corporations, which can be hard. So it kind of fulfills both sides of my desire to be up here thinking, you know, long-term, but also get in there and make things happen every day. Do you depend on certain people in the organization that are optometrists or optometry industry experts to feed you, or is your time sort of down and in the industry enough that you really have been around it long enough, you have your own sense of what optometrists need and desire? Yeah, I would say it's the former. Uh, I need to have a lot of voices in my ears of, of the optometrist. Um, 
Now, having said that, I've been around it long enough now, but I still learn things every day. I came out of the contact lens business and still learning about labs and frames and because it's so complex. Um, and so what's really critical is how do you get those voices? And, and we've been really doing a lot uh, at IDOC, adding to our board, which I'm sure we'll talk about. We have what's called IDOC member directors who we meet with regularly. These are folks, sort of leaders in the field. And I try to be on the phone as much as I can, go to meetings, of course, and, and listen to what the challenges are that they're facing and what they need from not just us, but our partners, uh, from manufacturers, from whoever it might be. And, and that, you know, back to your, you know, your point about what, what is important in leading an organization, it is listening. And in, in this case, it's listening to the optometrists and, and uh, he or she, their needs and what their wants are and how to help them succeed. So just as practices have gone through purchase by private equity, IDOC had gone through a couple of similar acquisitions. As you are in this partnership now, you can tell us about it, but what are the primary pro and con situations when you have an ownership model helping you guide your business? Yeah, uh, thanks for that question. Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I, I love this question because I, you know, I came out of a, you know, Fortune 10 company, right, Johnson and Johnson, and then moved into IDOC, which at the time was owned by the Riverside Company, private equity, and now partner with Investors Management Corporation, which is a long-term investor. So, you know, we could talk about J and J for as long as we wish, but I'll focus in on PE, really, Scott. Um, you know, fascinating. What was great about Riverside was their business model is find founder-run companies, work with that founder, bring in leaders who understand business, and create a business that grows up, for lack of a better term. That's not to say what Dr. Fader did was amazing, you know, IDOC founded 21 years ago now. So when we came in, it was about putting metrics in place and the people and the processes and how do you measure success but it was mainly, I will call, short-term. And I can say that because when I talk about Investors Management Corporation, they are long-term. So what I mean by short-term is there's a time horizon, right? There's a plan in place for how do you do as much as you can, as fast as you can, but you also don't have the, well, I'm thinking about doing this and it'll pay out in five years. Meh, you know what? We're not really interested in that. That'll be the next person's job to sort of do. Um, so I learned a lot. I learned a lot moving from Johnson Johnson to private equity. And there are some great people in private equity. They, they bring to the forefront. Um, and I, I especially liked the Riverside because they were investing in businesses to grow. That's what I've been attracted to all my career. I didn't want to go someplace where they were tearing it down or changing things dramatically. When Investors Management Corporation came in, um, you know, it's a tremendous organization. They are a, a family investor. They're a long-term investor. They think 10, 20, 30, they literally think 50, 100 years out. You might say, well, how is that possible? What they're doing is they're thinking about decisions that you make today, how that can play out over the long run. And the long run can be as long as you want it to be. And so as CEO, it really changes how we think. It changes how we think about optometry. It changes how we can look at the next generation of optometrists coming in while meeting the needs of the current generation. It's very freeing. But as they say, just because they're long-term doesn't mean they're not impatient, right? We want results. We want growth. We want innovation. Uh, so I've been so fortunate in those sort of three very different um, careers and, and opportunities and uh, couldn't say enough about where we are today. And as part of that idea of grow, 
even if it's a 10 or 30 year strategy, the idea is that in the end, your members still the focus. I mean, particularly with a longer term investor, they're going to get their benefit if the member benefits. Is, is that fair to say that's how IMC looks at? Of course, they ask us all the time, do what's right for the member, right? And sort of the rest will follow. So, uh, you know, their businesses are similar. They have some franchisees. We're not, of course. But this idea of how can a core headquarters help individuals out running their business is sort of core to how they think and we think. And so every day we're thinking about how an independent optometrist can succeed in a very competitive environment, can meet the new challenges, can bring on new technologies. I'm sure we'll chat about some of these things. Uh, and that's what's really critical because at the end of the day, if our, ven if our members do well, the products that they're using, the manufacturers do well, we attract more folks to IDOC, but as long as they're growing and then, you know, we'll grow along with them. So I always ask pre-interview the question, what's a potential threat that you might see from your chair in the industry toward optometry? And I thought your reaction to the word threat was interesting. Can you share that reaction here? Yeah, sure, sure. I find it to be an interesting word um, because I think there's a lot of competition, but I don't think there's a threat to optometry. Now, is there a threat to independent optometry? Is there a threat to, you know, glasses are going to become AR, et cetera, et cetera, augmented reality? Sure. But those are, I view them as opportunities. And I know that sounds cliche. But what I meant, Scott, and, and, and you know, I appreciate this question is a threat is, is like I make gas powered engines right now and everything's moving electric. Well, if I was a gas powered engine maker, I'd be, I'd be under threat. I better figure out how to do something else. The industry we're in, healthcare is fantastic. The eye care industry is fantastic. The demographics are amazing. The needs are incredible. The innovation's coming. And so for me, it's about how does an individual look at that landscape and determine how they want to compete? We're not threatened by people's eyes being fixed overnight. Everybody's getting presbyopia. Most people are going to get the glaucomas and the issues. So then when you hone in optometry, for sure, the independent optometrist is under competitive pressures. I'll say it that way. Not without opportunities to do things differently. Not without the ability to look and say, hey, I'm going to not only provide great vision care and correct vision, but I'm going to get into specialties and other things. So, you know, I, I hear the term a lot, threats and, and sure, SWOT analyses and things like that. But, um, but I'd like to think of them as... First of all, it's a tremendous industry to be in. It constantly grows. It has uh, amazing um, uh, fundamentals. And, and so an optimist by nature, I look at those things and say, great, let's get to work. And how are we going to help people succeed? So how does IDOC use its board or its advisory group? I don't want to use the wrong term. Identify these things that are risks and need to be addressed. And is there a contemporary example of something you think that IDOC's done a good job of, of guiding its members on of late? Sure. Uh, you know, it first starts, so at the board level, IDOC has a board of directors. Uh, I'm on it. My partner, Oliver Spandau, is on it. Um, he's our CFO, executive vice president. Many people watching probably know Oliver. Um, the IMC folks are on the board. And then we have, uh, we have four outside directors, if you will. One is a gentleman from McKesson who is highly strategic and in the acquisition space and understands that. Matt Yorty is his name. And then we've added three optometrists recently, Dr. Janelle Davison out of Atlanta, Dr. Ansel Johnson out of Chicago, 
and Dr. Katie Greiner out of uh, out of Ohio. And uh, we've had fantastic meetings so far with them. And so that's the first place where we would bring, hey, we're seeing this, uh, you know, like looking around the corner. What do you think? And and we'll hear from them and we'll hear from the voice of their colleagues and the voice of things that they're uh, that they're seeing. And, and, you know, we're watching this or watching that or, you know, the diabetes issue is usual. And what should we do there? So that's step one, and we love those meetings. I think the next step, I mentioned the IDOC member directors, but it's really about our, our team at IDOC. Uh, each, each member has an account manager that's dedicated to them. And so we're constantly talking with that team. What are you hearing? What issues are you facing? What are you, what are you, um, you know, looking at as, as, a, as a major concern? So one of the things we've done um, and I'll speak a little bit about um, what we call IDOC Insider, Scott. Uh, we, and this is a really good example of the PE world versus a long-term investor. So we, we innovated with something called IDOC Select. And with IDOC Select, you would get GPN's edge and it measures share. And I won't get into all the details, but it's a really innovative program that came out in 2015. Um, but today, IDOC pays for edge in all the practices that are compatible and want to have edge in their practice. And the reason we do that is because we believe metrics and knowledge about what's going on, I know you're a big believer in that, is critical for success. But it doesn't just stop there. We then have charts and we send out monthly reports and we have conversations about it and we consult on it. So you know, that's an example of where we went to IMC and they said, what are you waiting for? This data is so powerful, this knowledge, and it helped us through the COVID situation, we're, we're over 1,200 locations now where we're reading weekly data on an aggregate level of what's going on in practices. So it's helpful to IDOC, it's helpful to our partners, but it's really helpful to the independent practice um, to succeed. And so that's an example of something we did. And then we talk about this and we, have, we, we ask our members what they like about it, how we can improve it. Um, and it's been a lot of fun watching that sort of just become reality. And Sandbox Stories doesn't just cover business. We cover people. And you are one of uh, the many interesting people in our industry. And let's go way back. Your paternal grandfather lived in 99. He was part of World War One. Can you tell a couple of interesting stories about his life? Sure. Yeah. He, uh, amazing guy, uh, John Stanley Brown. Uh, he came over after the war. Um, but in the war, uh, as a young kid, I guess he he was uh, he was um, worked with the horses and and the horses that pulled the cannons. And so he uh, he used to tell me stories. A favorite of mine was uh, he they used to um, train the horses on the Salisbury Plains uh, near Stonehenge, and literally they were just able to go in and out of Stonehenge. And uh, he would chuckle and he'd be having his nightly whiskey and he'd say, you know, some of these kids would carve their names in the stones. Like, Grandpa, did you do that? No, no, I chuckle. I didn't do that. So, yeah, that, it was just those types of stories. And then um, my favorite is his birthday is Armistice Day. So he was in the trenches on Armistice Day. And so he just he just remembers that greatly. And then, and then he laughs about coming over to the U.S. because I guess they started taxing even the soldiers. And he said, I had enough of that. So he came over. And, uh, and you know, I just I got to know him because he lived to be 99. And I actually... I actually interviewed him back in the day. I have an interview with him in my digital about a half hour long, and it's just wonderful to listen to his voice all these years later. So, um, um, you know, those, you know, I would say to anybody listening, if you have an elderly parent or a grandparent, get them on tape, ask them questions. You'll love it. Even if it's just a half hour, 
years from now, you look back on it and it's, it's a great memory. And he came from Scotland. Was he a, a Scot? Yeah. Yep. Came from Scotland and, uh, yeah. And, and, you know, I've been over there. Uh, I had a wonderful trip to Edinburgh, played golf a little bit. Um, oldest daughter went to the university of St. Andrews. So I guess the roots go a little bit deep on, on Scotland. And you went to Colgate University for college, and then your roommate becomes this lifelong friend like so many of us do. But as you circuit through the United States, you end up living back in the same hometown as him now. And I guess I'm curious, can you give your sense of the importance of those kinds of friendships in life? They're unbelievable. They are. They're, they're just about everything. Anything you read about, Scott, is, uh, is how do you connect with your social circle? And, and it takes hard work, right? And so... So Kevin Bryady is, is my friend, met him in college, um, and he's lived in Richfield, Connecticut his whole life, and everybody knows Kevin. Uh, he's got five kids, um, coaches baseball, basketball, and you know when I came to IDOC, he said, well, you're going to live in Richfield, so we moved up here, and, uh, and it was an incredible um, just how that all happened, best man at my wedding, and uh, to be able to see him regularly, we work out a lot now together. Um, when times are tough, he's a great guy to reach out to and talk to. So, you know, those, those stories, but again, what you hit on is so critical. Uh, and I got a great friend of mine, lifelong friend from J and J back in the day, <laughs> his mantra was, you got to stay in touch. And that's so critical. We, we get so busy and we get so caught up in things that, um, you got to work at it, but it's so meaningful to be able to have these, um, these friendships to be able to reach out to, and they, they help and feed us in so many ways. Um, you know, when, when you find folks like a Kevin, you, you stick to them. You know, it's interesting. Because of sandbox stories and pushing out notifications on LinkedIn, my first year college roommate in the dorms and I, who had only been connected that way, have reconnected in the last couple of months and plan to get together this summer. And um, it takes work. And I think that too many times, I mean, we're clearly all working on what's going on around us right now. We have some work friends, we have our neighborhood friends, but I'm really thrilled that Dan and I are going to be able to get together. And, you know, that's the beauty of, uh, of putting a little bit of effort in. I'm glad he made the effort to reach out to me. So I want to talk about your experiences working with the inventor of the Segway and some creations that you were a part of. Yeah, that was a really transformational time in my life. I was, uh, you know, I guess in my early thirties and, and, uh, the opportunity to work at Independence Technology and J&J. So Dean Kamen, the founder of DECA, created this balancing technology. J&J saw that and put it into a wheelchair. The wheelchair is called the iBot, and it does amazing things. Go upstairs. It actually balances a person at eye level on the two wheels. It's really amazing if you, if you want. It's still out there. Uh, I think Toyota now is partnered with it. But what was amazing about that experience, Scott, was um, – you know, here I was, this kid, and had a lot of success in my life at that point, I guess. But, you know, I'd never really had any struggles or challenges, per se. And here I was meeting people who fell off a ladder and suddenly was a wheelchair user. Or, you know, this amazing Dr. Rory Cooper, amazing story, marathon runner, Olympic caliber, got hit by a bus in Germany, spoke German. The uh, emergency folks came speaking in German, not thinking he knew, telling them how bad shape he was. He became a wheelchair user, a very highly decorated Olympiad, and now an engineer doing amazing things. And so you met these people and you learned from them how they met an incredible challenge. And so the resiliency of the human spirit, and uh, 
it was amazing. I mean, I had so much fun, but I just, I just grew up in that job and learned so much to be thankful and grateful and, uh, and realize that, um, you know, back to the friendship thing, you take the little things in life far too granted and none of these folks did. And they were so, um, amazing in their achievements and how they took what happened to them and turned it into something amazing. So it, it was, uh, it was an incredible five years of my life. You, you seem to be a very calm person. You said you practice mindfulness. What should we as an audience know and value about that type of practice? Yeah, um, thank you. Uh, it's new. <laughs> it's not uh, okay. something I've had to learn. Um, so yeah, I've read a lot about it. I love to read. I, I, I read both fiction and nonfiction, but I'm really curious. Um, and so when I stumbled across this probably about five years ago now, I started into it like most people do and, and, uh, you know, got onto the Headspace app and, and, um, but I've read a lot more about it. And I think the key is, first of all, it takes a lot of practice. You got to stay at it. Um, but once you get at it, it's 10 to 15 minutes a day and it just, it just calms the mind. It helps sort of realize, um, that yes, we're under a lot of pressure. Yes. We're under a lot of challenges. Um, and, and, and that's there for everybody. Um, for me, it has helped me be very sort of level-headed about these things and just recognize that, okay, that happened. That's fascinating. Now, how are we going to get after it and how are we going to try and fix it or what are we going to do about it? Um, but, it, it, you know, it, it's the, the um, 10% Happier is a really interesting book. Uh, for, uh, Dan, I'm, I'm blanking on the gentleman's name, but he was an announcer for ABC News. That's a good one to start with if folks want to try to read something. Um, there's another book called happiness advantage, which is really, really good. And the number one thing there is meditate. And so I, I think it helps, as you said, um, it helps calm the mind. It helps put things in perspective. Um, I, I, every morning I write down three things I'm grateful for and that, that has happened, um, yeah, much around the same time came to that a little bit late in life, but that, that is something else that, that, and it's just little stuff, right? I'm enjoying my cup of coffee or look at the deer in the backyard, whatever it might be. So, you know, it, it, it's, I encourage people to look into it, you know, wellness and mindfulness is something that um, has been there my whole life. I just wish I had find my, found mindfulness a little bit sooner. And in your work life, you're very proud of your organization's recent recognition as a great place to work. What makes it such? Oh, I appreciate you, you calling that out. Um, well, what makes it such is, uh, is I think, our first core value, which is people first always. Um, you know, we, and again, I, I credit Investors Management Corporation on this journey we went on. Uh, Simon Sinek, I'm sure you've talked about it on other, on other meetings, and I know you're a proponent of it. You know, the why, right? Start with why. And it was remarkable how fast our why at IDOC solidified when we started looking at how Simon Sinek sort of talks about it. And our why is we empower independent owners to live the practice of their dreams. Everybody at IDOC knows that. Everybody comes to work for that reason. And that's a really powerful higher order thing, right? So then when someone calls you up and says, hey, I want to thank you for helping me with that staff issue I had. Or I want to thank you for hosting that webinar about that latest innovation. Those things matter. Those little things go, go such a long way. So we worked really hard starting with that why and then went into our core values. Um, this is hard work, Scott, right? Any organization that's looking to create a culture, and you've been at those in your career, 
it, you know, once you find it, you never want to let go of it, but it's hard work. I think the other key is you've got to listen to your people and you've got to act on their feedback, but you also have to give them the feeling that they can, in a trusted way, give you that feedback. That's really critical. And so that starts with leaders being vulnerable and me giving feedback about myself in front of people or a mistake that I might've made or something. And, and it doesn't happen overnight, but that feedback then leads to, ah, okay, so folks are struggling, an example right now, folks are struggling with how to give feedback peer to peer. So we're bringing in Erin uh, O'Malley. If you know Erin O'Malley, she's spoken at one of our meetings, but we're bringing someone in to teach this, this very issue. You know, how to use situation behavior impact, how to, how to go about creating that environment. And so you listen, you act on it, you help train people, um, and then at the end of the day, you, you go out and you take these surveys and you cross your fingers that people think you're a great place to work. And so we, you know, we recently did that, but it's been, it's been a three to five year journey, um, understanding what it is that drives people. And of course, COVID created an incredible set of challenges, how to, how to, how to navigate through that. And we're all still getting through that, but, uh, but it's, um, I'm really proud of that. I appreciate you you mentioning it, um, and and but we're already working on making sure we get it again next year. So it's uh, you know it's it's not it doesn't last forever. Well, and as the pandemic hit last year, your lease in your office went up. So you just decided we're going to work virtually. How is that factoring into your employees' feeling about being a great place to work? Yeah, it's been a it's been a remarkable story. So. Um, you know, IDOC started in Norwalk, Connecticut. All employees were there. Over time, we allowed employees, and you've worked in, in sort of that type of organization. So we have folks now all over the country. Um, and we had a six-year lease, whatever it was. Anyway, May of this year, it was up. So we first made the decision, one of the first companies in Connecticut, we sent everybody home. It was early March. We were watching the COVID stuff. We said, go home. We're fortunate we don't make anything. We don't have to have a manufacturing plant. We're not seeing patients, so it's a little bit easier for us. We had been using Zoom, so we kind of knew how to do that. Um, and then we, we really worked hard throughout the past year on how to connect people. Um, it's been hard, right? Especially, I don't have young kids at home, parents, what they've been through, um, you know, caring for elderly parents. It's been so, so hard. So we've tried to be very empathetic. We've tried to be very flexible. Um, you know, we put in flexible work um, in terms of time off for that very reason. Um, but a couple of things we've done very tactically was even back when I first started IDOC, we used to have a stand-up meeting every Monday morning. I just grabbed 11 people. Come on, I'm going to stand up. We're going to talk about the week ahead. We had two stand-up meetings every week, 2 to 2.30. And we used that... Um, to speak about what's going on in the business, but we start with, okay, we're gonna start with shout outs for our colleagues. Hey, I wanna thank Scott, you know, he really jumped in and helped with this member and solved the problem. And so that goes around the horn. And then we added a little bit because of happiness advantage, what's going on good in your life? What, what happened that was positive? Hey, my kid just got an A in the paper or my son got into this college or whatever it might be. That's 10 minutes of the meeting and it's so powerful. And so that, um, that connects people, um, which is hard to do in the Zoom world. Um, and then we get on to sort of, you know, updates and, and projects and things like that. So, um, you know, those areas um, are just the little things that, that can go a long, long way. 
we're all hopeful to see each other soon. You know, we're hopeful to, whether it be at an optometry meeting, finally see you and others again. Uh, you know, we have a, a connection, our national meeting once a year next February. So, you know, we're all you know, looking forward to getting back there. But, um, and then we've tried, you know, again, just to be flexible on, um, on giving people space and, and trying to manage meetings and stuff like that. It's been hard. Um, and, you know, but we're, we're in it for the long run. We're remote for the long run now. And so, you know, we're, we're, and we're talking to other companies. Ed Buffington's a mutual friend of ours. He's been a great resource in terms of how they do it. So we're going out and listening to how these other businesses do it. And it's fascinating to watch even these large organizations say, yeah, we're going to, we're going to stay flexible and that office building is going to be a little bit empty and uh, the world's changed, Scott. And I don't think it's going back in the bottle kind of what it used to be. So I'll tell you when we started it in 2006 out of necessity, because we started Rev when I was in clinical practice and my partner running the, you know, writing the software is in Minneapolis. And we just looked at each other and said, we're going to live through Skype together and we're going to do this. It was, um, it was not exactly conventional. And I, I think it's just thrilling to see how whether it's a hybrid workforce or a complete remote workforce like yours can be productive and can be trusted because I do believe that's the case. Now, our clinics that we serve, as you do in your organization, are all together. And you're demonstrating that leaders can drive culture. It actually has to be worked on, like we talked about a different topic earlier what do you recommend to eye clinic leaders uh, from your experience of leadership that they do? I mean, is it as simple as start with a stand-up? That seems really like a great idea. Yeah, the, the simple things can go a long way. Um, I think it's it's whether you overtly say people first always or whether you act that way. Um, at the end of the day, we're all sort of in a service world right now, right, in terms of the competition and how. And I think that's how independent optometry can set themselves apart. I think it's happened a lot, quite frankly, through COVID and how they've dealt with, um, you know, it's funny, Scott. We, we have doctors who say, you know, it's funny. I see less patients now, but I'm, 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 I'm selling more. I'm having deeper conversations. And they never would have done that. They never would have narrowed their, their schedule. And yet that deep connection is working well. They'll find the balance someplace, right? So, right. but I, I think it's, it's really about, um, there's plenty of places to learn out there how to do this, how to, but it starts with the people. So stand-ups are great, listening to your people, um, having the ability to um, let them know that they're, they're being heard and even some of their recommendations are being put in place. Those, those things can go a long way. Um, and, and, but it's hard, right? That's, that, and you have to, you know, you sort of said, you have to believe in this and put the work in. It, it just, it can't happen. But I, I really feel that it starts with culture and the rest follows. If the culture's there, then the strategy happens. And if you don't get the strategy right, you change it. But if you've got the right people, and you know as well as I do, when you see a practice that is going great and you ask the doctor, they point to, Jane and they point to Bob and they point to Sue and they say, that's the reason why. And when you're surrounded by great people, the rest is kind of easy. And I'm going to echo for the audience, the word used earlier, vulnerability and the willingness that a leader has to demonstrate their vulnerability is absolutely critical. I mean, I just got done publishing a sandbox story perspective piece about it's okay to be wrong. And uh, that is, I think, something that everyone should take from your words today is 
be willing to be in front, but also be willing to lead in a way that allows you to sometimes be wrong. Because when you can demonstrate your willingness to be wrong sometimes, your team will be willing to take chances. And most of the time they'll be right. And if they're wrong, they know that they're going to get hit as hard as you got hit. They're going to just learn from it. And that, that's really important. Yeah, look, I might even go so far as to say, and you'd be in a better position to answer this, but you know, a doctor can be vulnerable to with a patient and say, look, that prescription didn't work. Let's try it again. Let's try a different lens. Let's try a different contact lens. You know, nobody's infallible. So, you know, I think those that goes a long way sort of creating a trust that um, that otherwise, you know, wouldn't be there if you said, well, the lab made a mistake and so I'm going to just do this, right? That, that and, you know, that's not going to get you where you want to get to. So I think about working from home, it, it makes me ask about your family. Tell us about your family. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Um, so we're very fortunate. Uh, so let's start with my wife, of course. We met at Colgate, so we've known each other for many, many years. And uh, she has um, she's worked remotely as I bounced around all these different J&J &J jobs and stuff. She's in the financial services industry um, and, you know, very talented on that front. And uh has struggled with me being home all the time. So that's a conversation for another day. And I'm sure a lot of folks are, are dealing with that in, in so many ways. It's just another COVID fallout where the patterns that you had set in life get upended and, and how you deal with those changes, um, you know, can, uh, can be good and bad some days. So, um, uh, so that's been a wonderful partnership. We're playing tennis together now, which is kind of fun. We're playing uh, mixed doubles and, uh, we're getting beat often, but it's a lot of fun nonetheless, and uh, and uh, that, that's great. And then uh, we've been fortunate to have two great daughters. I'll start with Danielle. She's our youngest, uh, just about to graduate from Villanova University. And she has um, really taken to what I'll call social causes or justice, and so she's looking in that realm um, of how to sort of help in that, in that regard. So it's very exciting uh, for that. And then um, our oldest daughter, Allie, She's kind of the globetrotter. Uh, she went to USC, and she went and studied monkeys in South Africa, and she went to the University of St. Andrews, and now she's teaching uh, gifted kids in Denver, and so she's loving that. Um, the whole family's vaccinated as of today, so that's uh, that's, that's a topical thing to, to think about. So, uh, And then the other one I'll just mention real fast is um, you know, we sent them both off to this wonderful camp in Colorado called Chile Colorado Camps many, many years ago. Um, and they have, they, they've probably been there now in total about 20 years. They're both going back as counselors this year, uh, both as directors and, uh, actually sit on a board that sends kids to camp, uh, to transform their lives. And it's a, it's called the John Lawson Chile Foundation. So it's been, it's been a passion of ours. And, and, you know, it's funny how you, you, you follow your, you, you put your kids in one direction, then you follow them in another direction. But, uh. But it's been a lot of fun. I'm, I'm the middle of two brothers, very close with them. So, you know, I've been, I've been very fortunate uh, on the family side. That's wonderful. Now we're going to talk about that acting gig as a teenager. So <laughs> before we talk about it, before you tell us about it, let's get together and watch this 30-second clip. And to the viewers that can see this, uh, watch number 13 in the blue jersey. Here we go. Get the moves with the pearl basketball shoe from Jordash. Available at fine stores. Jordash look. 
All right. So that is a classic 1980s video. Tell us how this came to be. Oh, gosh. Uh, <laughs> so I was playing basketball at Randolph High School. Uh, it was Christmas time. The, um, uh, there was a cheerleader whose dad worked at Saatchi and Saatchi. They wanted to do a commercial for Jordache sneakers. And so they came in Friday. It was a rush, rush deal. We played basketball a little bit Friday. And then uh, Saturday, I walk into the gym. My dad drops me off. I walk in unsuspecting. They pull me over and said, hey, we want you in the commercial. And what do you mean? <laughs> we want you to, okay. You know, I didn't know any better, 17-year-old kid. So I signed some piece of paper and, you know, and uh, and next thing you know, we're shooting the commercial. And, and uh, you know, it was, it was an all-day affair. Um, Obviously got to meet Earl Monroe, which was great. And I played basketball at the school, of course. So that was, I guess, partly why. Um, and it was a hoot. But the after story is even funnier because, you know, now I'm going to age myself. You know, 1980, there's no VCRs. There's nothing. So we'd be at home and someone would yell, hey, your commercial's on. So I'd race to the other room and catch the end of it. So I probably, and it only ran for maybe about a month. Jordan Sneakers, um, Never made it. Um, I never made it. That was the beginning and end of, uh, of my acting career. But, um, but it was a ton of fun. And then years later, I was at Johnson & Johnson. And I was like, you know, I wonder if anybody has that video of, of so I called the agency Saatchi, ironically. They sent it over. I used to show people. My wife, Christine, was like, why are you showing people that? They're like, you shouldn't be showing them that. And, uh, and then eventually it showed up on YouTube, and I did not put it up on YouTube. So just for the record, but uh, but it's fun. It's one of those stories, Scott, and it just uh, it's a hoot. And um, you know, I'm just glad I made that lefty layup. One take. <laughs> one take. <laughs> you know, and and for the viewers who don't know, Earl the Pearl Monroe was a absolute prototype basketball guard. He was an incredible legend, and. You know, unfortunately, 40 years have passed since then. Sorry to say that, but um, you should go take a look at, if you have a chance, folks, any of the highlights of his career. He was an absolute gift to the professional game, which then was a lot more established and sort of considered than maybe the pro game is today. But uh, I'd like to finish off with some comments about being the best humans we can be. You, you mentioned to me that you like to express signature strengths of character. Can you tell us what that means? Sure. Yeah, it's uh, it actually came out of the Happiness Advantage, and it's a it's a, um, a Sean Acor is the author, and you can take a test. Um, and it's really it really hones in on your character strengths. How do you use things in your own um, worldview, if you will, and how you can use them to your advantage? So, you know, for me. Humor, creativity, optimism, those are sort of top of the top of the chain, if you will. And and so, you know, was, I sort of knew that to some degree. I like to write, I like to read, I was an announcer in football in college. I mean, I just like to do a lot of these different types of things. I think the other key though is you're not strong at everything. So as a leader, you better make sure you have that realist on your team, or you better make sure you have that person just, hey, Dave, wait one second, did you think about this, right? Or you need to have that leader. And I'm very, very fortunate to be surrounded by those leaders at IDOC. But, um, but those signature strengths of character, you know, they're critical. And, you know, the other thing, Scott, back on culture, we want people to come to IDOC and be who they are. And you, you don't, if you come in and you're trying to be something else, you won't be successful. So, 
you know, I encourage people to, however you go about it, figure out what you're really good at, um, play to those strengths, um, honor those strengths, and I'm sure they'll, they'll stead you well throughout your life. And that authenticity leads to the other question, which is your organization's made some commitments to diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I think for us to be authentic, we have to start by listening to those that have not been equally treated over time. Can you just give a little insight to the audience about how you've driven down that path? Sure, yeah. Well, it started personally first, right? It started with um, a journey you know, that started last year with, uh, with what happened you know, to George Floyd, and, and um, we're going through that again right now with the trial. Um, and so that caused me and many folks uh, across America to, to really look into what's really going on here. And, you know, as a white man, I had a lot to learn, uh, white privilege. And so I, I went on a journey. I've read a lot, a lot of podcasts, a lot of things to, um, to really understand, you know, just my journey. Uh, once I learned that, I then realized, wow, there's just, there's just so much here, right? So I then went out looking for different resources and places. So I'll just hit on a couple real fast. Um, you know, one of the, one of the companies with an IMC, um, sent me to something called CEO Action. And CEO Action is a group of CEOs, there's about 1,500 now, who take a pledge to talk about training in the workforce on unconscious bias, to share things that work and things that don't work, to put a diversity plan in place, to bring it to the board. Uh, that has been something that um, we're acting on and doing a lot of work on. Uh, we reached out to uh, some of the I will call them experts, if you will, the visionaries. So we're working very closely with Dr. Adam Ramsey and Dr. Daryl Glover, Diversity Perspective. Uh, again, tremendous to hear their viewpoint and point of view. And the board members I mentioned before, uh, Dr. Johnson, Dr. Davidson, Dr. Greiner, diverse in their own ways. And, uh, and, and I just learned so much. It's been so heartening, but it, it also is just so challenging with how far we have to go, how far we have to go in optometry, how far we have to go at IDOC, how far I have to go. Uh, and so it, it's, it, that also doesn't ever stop. Um, that's also something to think long-term about because, uh, and that's where consistent efforts uh, year in and year out, day in and day out are gonna make the difference. Uh, I hope IDOC can make a little bit of difference to that, but I would ask everybody in the industry who's watching this to go on your own journey, but how can we together make diversity, equity, inclusion something for everybody? And um, it's just too important to not take that take that effort. And I will quickly add that Dr. Ann Ramsey has been a guest on Sandbox Stories, and I urge everyone to go back and listen to the wonderful perspective that he shared. I know you're proud of IDOC. We're going to wrap up. you have a final thought about your organization that you want to share? Yeah, just to say, um, I love what we do. You know, we empower independent owners to live the practice of their dreams. Uh, innovation is critical. I could list a lot of them. It's what I love to do. But I won't do that, Scott. Just come and check us out. Look at our innovation. We're always doing something new and different. We're always trying to meet the needs to empower those dreams. And uh, if you have any questions, you can reach out to me. I'm sure there'll be ways to find me uh, from this. But um, no, it's been it's been a uh, I've loved every minute of my seven years and can't wait to do a lot more and, and lead the organization and lead the people. But uh, it's been a lot of fun. I appreciate you reaching out to me and, and asking the great questions and being able to share a little bit of uh, 
of my life. I've been very fortunate, Scott, very, very grateful for everything that's come my way and can't wait to see what the future brings. Well, thank you for bringing this really long-term thinking to this conversation. I think that the optometry audience needs to absorb some of that and live it. And I'm really glad for you having taken the opportunity to talk with us today and share your many stories. I appreciate it much. Thank you. Have a great day. And to the audience, thanks for attending and listening to Dave Brown's many stories. Until my next Sandbox story, be great at all you do.